Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, nudges. Welcome to episode 25 of Obehave, a quarter of a century, some might say. Um, I'm Mike Hughes, and on this month's episode, we've got a fascinating discussion. Uh, Rory invited David Smollin, CEO of Smollin, um, to discuss what is the future of retail. This is a question David and his team have been asking. So we discuss how physical and digital experiences will merge in the future, um, how the race um, for technological improvements to retail, what does that mean for uh, the psychology um, of retail experiences, um, and a lovely insight by David asking the question that does self-service mean no service? Uh, a fascinating chat. So we beamed um, David from uh, his offices in Johannesburg and uh, Rory was in Ogilvy Kent. And also a good 10 minutes on the phenomenon that is Build-A-Bear. Uh, so watch out for that. Um, okay, cool. Let's cut to the audio. So, David, as we look to the next generation of stores, how do we think we will bridge uh, the divide between physical stores and digital online stores as we know them now? I think you're going to see three uh, areas that grow in future stores. The first is going to be experience and there'll be a better bridging of the physical and digital experience, uh, more integration. And you're starting to already see this mainly from the digital retailers that are moving into physical. Yeah. The second, I think, is you will see more service in the store. And I, I don't mean more people giving service, but more and different kinds of services that retailers will start to develop. And I think the concept of convenience is going to become more and more important and and just thinking much more broadly about convenience, not just proximity. Um, I think that's where we can start to talk about some of the behavioral aspects of what does convenience mean. Uh, those, I think, would be some of the things I would think about in terms of the store of the future. Great. And as we have, I suppose, the race to convenience do you think that is, is there a, what's the psychological question there? I know, Rory, before you've talked about kind of one times seven doesn't equal seven times one. Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing for me because in a way, uh, Amazon has worked out a very interesting way of delivering seven things to seven people. <laughs> okay. Um, so in other words, uh, it's a great place for seven people to buy one thing but it's not quite a great place for one person to buy seven things. And I think, you know, that's just an interesting observation. The other thing I think I would predict is that we'll begin to see a, I mean, not necessarily a correction, but an evening out of various trends. So just as in the very early days of the Kindle, I think, remember that humans are kind of neophiles. 
And humans disproportionately tend to notice the advantages of something new and disproportionately tend to discount the advantages of the old way of doing things simply because anything that's newly possible becomes highly salient. And because we notice it more, we tend to value it more. But over time, I think we'll start to rediscover the virtues of different forms of retail, including uh, an enriched form of conventional shopping. Because if you think about it, I mean, simply for economic reasons, the business of attempting to deliver everything to everybody, to take a reductio ad absurdam, okay, trying to deliver everything to, in the UK's case, 25 million households, is both environmentally unsustainable, it's unsustainable in terms of traffic, and it's also psychologically unsustainable in that uh, above a certain volume of online delivered goods, your home turns into a logistics hub. I mean, it happens to me before Christmas. And so, and by the way, uh, by the way, the UK is the, actually the easiest place in the world if you were possibly going to do that. Quite, because it's, it's a very dense population, uh, you know, outside the north of Scotland. Uh, it's, a very, it's a relatively small country with an incredibly urbanized population. And so uh, simply talking to logistics people, you know, you can actually you can actually achieve nationwide coverage of the UK fairly conveniently with about 1200, 1300 outlets. That's what McDonald's has. It's what Shell has. It's what BP has, uh, more or less. And there's a huge difference, an order of magnitude difference in the complexity of delivering goods to 1200 or 2000 locations versus 24 million. And absolutely. And one other thing I'll say, because this is something I think most people don't think about when it comes to online grocery retail, for example, is if you look at the average basket ring size and you think about the operating profit margin of the average grocery retailer and you think about how much operating margin there is inside the basket, if you didn't have this massive subsidy of somebody hauling themselves to the store on their own time in their own vehicle at some time, paying for their own logistics, picking it off the shelf and packing it. There's no way it would be affordable to provide the groceries at that price. It's quite it's, it's an interesting one because I don't think we think about the human subsidy that we actually give the physical retailers just by doing most of the work. And of course, I mean, it's probably exacerbated by the fact that quite a few of the most fashionable online retailers are disproportionately indulged by their shareholders, based on the assumption by the shareholder that their growth isn't going to be asymptotic. It's, you know, I mean, there must, you know, Amazon's valuation depends on, uh, you know, the current level of growth continuing unabated uh for, you know for another five to ten years personally i don't see that happening yeah and and i think i think it's also underpinned by and this is an interesting point it's underpinned by things like amazon web services and some of the other stuff that they have inside their business so it's really like in a way a bit of a conglomerate so you can't really unpack the retail valuation of it's on its own and i think that's where some of its competitors come unstuck obviously that would be true of avocado which if you think about it the real value of avocado is not the money they make delivering groceries it's the software they've developed by doing that which then becomes a whole effectively a a whole bunch of frozen expertise that you can sell to any anyone else anywhere in the world 
I've often argued that maybe, yeah. maybe that's what Tesla's doing, that Tesla's never going to make much money making cars, but by dint of actually manufacturing and running cars if it's five years ahead of anybody else's software it essentially owns a market that's much more valuable than the car market yeah i think that that's one of the great beauties of tesla is being two steps ahead i mean i, I would argue they they're probably going to make more money out of batteries than cars over the next 10 years um but coming back I liked your point, Rory, about novelty and human beings and how we sort of get used to um, the status quo because I was sort of thinking back um, on retail over the years and I read, a, I read a great article in Monocle and they spoke about retail at its essence being either simple or pleasurable and hopefully both. And I was thinking about, imagine what it must have been like in the early 1900s to go shopping. You would have sort of walked into the store holding your parents' hand and there was some someone behind a glass counter and you could buy anything ranging from sardines to paint um, to paintbrushes. I, mean, I remember when our business was founded in 1931, we represented the most extraordinary eclectic bunch of principles. Um, and a sales rep would represent them all going into these little stores. And imagine you walked into the first supermarket and you came into the bright lights and the wide aisles and you had a basket or a trolley and you had this massive range that you could freely roam and select. You can imagine in a, in a mind that had not been overly stimulated by digital devices, it must have been the most extraordinary ADD experience of all these different data points 12 different kinds of ketchup or something like that. You, funnily enough, you more or less had the same thing when uh, the border between East Germany and West Germany came down. Yes, exactly. So, so East, East Germans were suddenly presented with this range of choice. Um, and, uh, and you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It was recreational. It was like an unbelievable experience to go and have all this choice and stimulus and amazing ability to help yourself. And it, it was slightly disturbing in the very early days because simply they hadn't been primed for uh, that much choice or that much now availability. On the, on the 300th time of doing that, the utility starts to go. And, and finally, you, you know, self-service, which at one point was a novelty, and the scale of the store, which at one point was a novelty, ironically, has lost its... Um, Lost well, it's novelty. an interesting thing. There, there are certain things where I suppose we we look in order to select. So, I mean, it's worth remembering that my local shop, when I was very small, this would have been 1969, 1970, was still a counter. And you simply went in with a list and asked the man for what you wanted. This was Welsh Borders, yeah, 1969, 70, I guess. And you had a shop, you had a shopping list, because if you didn't have a shopping list, it was a kind of impossible experience. And there are certain things where we, you know, uh, we want to look. There are other things, of course, where the nature of the search is completely different. We know specifically what it is we want. And this is where, of course, there's a weird trade-off between shopping in store and shopping online. If you want something really obscure like tarragon, 
you know, Ocado or any kind of grocery website is fantastic because you type in tarragon, you get a choice of it. If you if you actually turn up at a branch of Tesco wanting some tarragon, it's a bit of a nightmare because the classification system is extremely weird uh, in many cases. Uh, you know, something like Marmite or peanut butter, which is kind of hard to categorize, is murder to find in that kind of store. And so, I mean, you you notice this, which is, you know, Amazon will always have an extraordinarily strong dominance in selling USB cables, you know, where you know exactly what it is you want. um, And, um, uh, you know, you simply want to find it as efficiently as possible. There's a whole area where both browsing and also store curation still has, I think, an an enormous amount of uh, uh, value to add. Yeah. And... Interestingly enough, many uh, physical retailers, I feel, have not really understood the value of their digital platform and and harnessing it in a slightly different way rather than just thinking of it as a trading uh, platform. So I was thinking the other day, um, I, I ordered some groceries online and they arrived and there were several items that were out of stock. Now think about what a fantastic sampling opportunity that is. Sorry, you couldn't get this, but we've given you this as a free sample. Maybe you want to try this with our compliments, and we apologize that we were out of stock. And you would, you would totally turn an inconvenience into a joyful experience. Or uh, we were talking about um, the other day. You, you know, think about some religious occasions or holidays where you have got an unusual spike in certain products that make no sense for a fast-moving consumer goods supply chain, that's the kind of thing that could be beautifully fulfilled via e-commerce. You arrive at the store, we don't have your um, products for the religious holiday, and but don't worry, we'll ship them to you with our compliments because you're a great customer of ours. So that platform can become, I think, a, a, a real... Um, customer service or experience weapon rather than thinking of it narrowly as just a trading platform where it's it, you'd be hard-pressed to ever make money out of that in grocery. Well, the, the, there's a great phrase which is used in IT, I think particularly among practitioners of agile. Um, and it's a, it, it's a criticism. It's a phrase used as a kind of uh, criticism for want of imagination and it's called paving the cow paths and i think the origins of the phrase come from the city of boston where the city fathers uh, when it came to actually building the city and um, properly paving the streets they didn't sit down and rethink what the design and layout of the city might have been they just paved the existing cow paths which are kind of randomly formed and In IT, it's used where you add a layer of technology on top of a process without fundamentally taking the opportunity to rethink the process overall. Yeah, I love that. It's a a very useful analogy, I think, because to be honest, an awful lot of companies have paved the cow path uh, in retail. So weirdly, I mean, for most uh, retailers, there is absolutely no intelligent overlap between their physical presence and their virtual one, to a point where I went to buy a pair of children's shoes at a highly reputable um, shoe re- retailer in the UK, and they had every size except hers. Now, bear in mind, finding shoes that your daughter will wear and which the school will permit her to wear is quite a narrow overlap, generally. 
I mean, it's, you know, it's worthy of... Oh, no, no, it, it, it was a high-five moment. And yet, I was there expecting them to say, don't worry, we can order them and you can collect them, or if you like, you can have them delivered to your home in the right size. Nothing happened. And what I learned, um, funnily enough, talking to David Roth, was that um, most people in store are deeply hostile to this because they see it as losing their sales commission. Now, when David Roth, I think, was marketing director of B&Q, I similarly spoke to the marketing director of a large fashion chain in the UK. And they said, when we told our staff that they would be bonused on any sales online within their catchment area, weirdly, our online sales went up by about 50% overnight. And what it was, was that it was almost the staff actively discouraging any use of this alternative system, because they saw it essentially as, you know, they were Luddites, they saw it as destroying their jobs. And once you change the sort of reward system so that they were rewarded for local sales, regardless of the channel, everything changed. Now, another example, I suppose, of, of paving the cow paths, which fascinates me, a former colleague of mine at Ogilvy, a man called Nick Brackenbury, founded a company called Near Street. And Near Street allows stores to post their inventory online so that it's completely searchable. Now, if you think about it, there must be a large number of things we buy online which are actually sitting available in a shop two miles from our home, but we can't find that. We can only find the online version. Now, yeah. my contention is... How many of these things, if you actually knew something at a vaguely comparable price was available from a physical retailer, um, you know, three miles from your home, how many of us would choose to have it delivered rather than collecting it? Well, the answer is we don't know yet because weirdly physical retail inventory isn't searchable. Now, few people have done that. Argos have probably done it. Amazing I mean, Argos is a very interesting um, uh, entity because it's kind of ahead of its time. I mean, it was Amazon before Amazon in terms of full multi-channel offering. Um, they might do it, but only recently, I think, John Lewis have started doing this. So you search for a particular product which they sell, and if you're you know, within so many miles of a John Lewis, it will tell you we've got it in stock. Now, I think if you're given the opportunity simply to click reserve for five days, my hunch is that, if not a majority, a significant minority of people will choose that over the risk of, of the pitfall. Yeah, with, because delivery still takes you know time, and there's certain things that are not going to be instantaneously delivered. And I, you know, your point is right. And I was thinking about why it seems that digital retailers are far more organized around data. And you think, you know, because they're online retailers, I think that there are a lot of those things and data is more accessible and they've got sort of better transaction records and their data is more integrated and it's more contemporary technology. I mean, all those things I think are true. But in a way, it's almost like thinking about somebody who is blind. Their other senses develop far more profoundly. And in a way, an online retailer is blind to the customer because he never comes into the store. You never see him. So you never take that for granted. So you tend to sort of think of serving them physically with your eyes closed. And so you think a lot more about what is around that person. Um, and that, I think, is 
an advantage that they start to bring into physical retail. Certainly what I'm seeing with some of the digital retailers that are opening physical stores because they bring the base of that technology into the physical environment. And so their heightened sensibility comes from not having been able to see the customer. They become acutely sensitive to what they do know. That's very, very interesting. Because uh, think about it. You you, you hear people say, well, uh, an online retailer knows when a customer has visited and how many times they come and how many different locations they visit at. But a physical retailer with a loyalty card can do exactly the same thing. But they don't. No, uh, that, that's very, very interesting. I mean, uh, loyalty card data, I mean, famously, quite a lot of companies don't really know how to cope with it. Um, it's valuable, I think, because, of course, it gives you a customer view uh, rather, than the, rather than the category view, which has to be valuable. And also thinking about, you know, what is the benefit for your valuable customer? Because... You know, you talk a lot about airlines, Rory, and um, think about what a loyalty card gives you at an airline. It gives you status, um, convenience, kind of preferential access to a seat, jump the queue, um, financial benefit. They've really, really thought about it because it's much more of an experiential business. Um you don't really get much of that in terms of loyalty. No, so, I mean, interestingly, I'm, a very simple thing is it would probably be easy to spot uh, a few, per customer, a few highly decisive products. You know, They might be actually relatively niche brands, but they're things that that person buys with extraordinary regularity. I mean, a, a very good example of that would be um, uh, gluten-free products, for example, you know, it's a minority product. The category may not be that exciting, but to a person who's uh, either celiac or simply obsessed with being gluten-free, um, <coughs> that will have an absolutely disproportionate effect on their choice of retailer. Now, it wouldn't be difficult to, um, in that category, for example, to warn them when things are out of stock. It wouldn't be impossible, would it? To say, you know, we, have, we haven't got this in stock until Wednesday. Not just to, just to let you know, we know you nearly always buy this. We have actually run out, but more will come in on Wednesday. A few little you know notifications like that um, could be enormously useful, but it never happens. Well, let me build on that. Let me build on that. You know, you, Rory, are one of our most fabulous customers. You spend a fortune with us, and you know what? We're sorry we're out of stock but don't worry, we will deliver it to you for free. Absolutely excellent. Yeah, yeah. So, in other words, if you find anything, you know, you can have your, you can choose your thirty favorite brands, and if ever you find they're out of stock, so you could have a kind of friends and family um, system with the things you buy most often, which would be an interesting thing. Yeah, because I bet you, I bet you, if the CEO of Tesco went to his local Tesco and they were out of stock of something that he really wanted, there would be an employee that would drive it. Yeah, interesting. Or you could hold some back, which would be the other alternative. Um, I mean, there's a a very interesting story, which is I've only traced it back to a Financial Times article. I've never managed to find the, um, uh, uh, the, the real chapter and verse. But supposedly direct marketing was invented by Benjamin Franklin. 
And Benjamin Franklin had a bookshop which operated by mail order. And typically the books would come in at the time from Europe. And he used to write to his customers and say, uh, this book that's of particular interest to you has just arrived from Europe. I have 20 copies, but I'm holding one back for you and so forth. Now, that kind of thing, which was weirdly, it was instinctive in the mom and pop store, but that kind of behavior has never been replicated in the digital environment. And to some extent, that is what digital is. It's actually using, uh, it's using technology to do at scale something which small retailers simply did through instinct. Well, it's interesting because not only has it not been replicated in digital, but it hasn't been replicated in self-service. Now, this concept of self-service should not mean no service. You know, thinking about that human touch, you know, that mindfulness, that humanity of serving a customer. And if you think about it, all the machinery is there to do so. The knowledge of who is a great customer is there, but it's really connecting the dots in a more integrated way to say, Rory is a big spender, a valuable customer to us. We failed him today because we didn't have the product, but we're going to use our machinery to make sure he gets it within two days. And it's going to come at a slight cost to us. But if you think about the total value of what he is to us, we would really be looking after him. Now, in a single store, the shopkeeper would know all of that intuitively. And from a human perspective, would be almost well, it's interesting because I think what you what you've happened on there is I think a fundamental mistake which tends to be made in marketing, which is that we tend to try and view everything as an optimization problem, which is we say when everything goes perfectly, how efficient and how wonderful can it be? And in many ways, I'd say the return on marketing is often higher in saying when something goes wrong, how can we actually turn a weakness into a strength or clutch victory from the jaws of defeat? And it struck me as very interesting, just as a, something I noticed repeatedly, which is that digital processes tend to have the quality, which is that when everything goes well, they are awe-inspiringly good. They're extraordinarily streamlined. They're amazingly efficient. You only have to have two or three things wrong, and you actually enter a whole world of pain. And I have the most extraordinary thing happen. Now, I'm, I hate criticizing them because they're generally very good, but it was John Lewis in the UK. And I ordered one of those Dyson fans for my daughter's bedroom, which is upstairs and gets hugely hot. And it was ordered. It was dispatched to my local Waitrose for collection, and it never turned up. Now, interestingly, I turned up thinking, well, I didn't get a text, but after two days, it should be available for collection. They didn't know anything about it. So I go home and then I ring them and they say, oh, no, um, it, it never arrived. It was dispatched, but it never arrived. Clearly, some delivery driver interpreted John Lewis' partnership a bit too liberally, okay, and heisted the fan. Okay, now, it struck me, it should be obvious that software should record when something dispatched doesn't arrive notifies the customer, explains that we're now reordering another one, and says, come in a day later. And I would have been, to be honest, perfectly happy. In the event, I had a wasted journey because I was confused. Then they basically said, we're refunding you, and you have to go and order it all over again. In the end, I ordered it from Dyson Direct, 
because I've kind of felt out the urge to punish them slightly for failure. But um, there is something wrong there, which is that software seems to be designed around how can we make an experience theoretically perfect, rather than saying, look, in reality, things go wrong. When things go wrong, how can we automate something so that the degree of customer pain is minimized? And I think that's a, I think that's a common marketing mistake. They're always trying to add value rather than subtract. Definitely, and I think those moments those moments of pain are some of the greatest opportunities you get to serve as a retailer. And I think those are the distinguishing, the defining moments, almost like the moments of truth um, in retail. And there are many many ways now with the broadness of the footprint that you can correct errors. But yet, it's almost as if there is a sort of a vicious cycle because physical retail is under threat. As a result of that, there is pressure to become more efficient. So the amount of stock in the supply chain drops. There is pressure on the cost-to-income ratio. So uh, cost is taken out of the wage bill. There are less hands to serve, and there is a deteriorating experience. So it's almost like a vicious cycle, which would in, would would lead somebody to alternate towards purchasing online. I mean, I'm talking kind of a, a, a grim story because it's not the case everywhere, um, and I think many many retailers are doing a brilliant job, but sort of thinking differently about what the advantages are of the physical footprint which I believe is a massively fundamental advantage, but needs to be rethought. I like your, your point about paving the gap paths because I think there's another uh, quote by uh, Churchill, which is, we Absolutely shape our buildings yes. and then our buildings shape us. Yeah, I think that's very, very true indeed. And I think I think the paving of the cow paths is that um, uh, what seems to have happened is that most physical retailers, I mean, you can make a few exceptions for the people who've used click and collect uh, very widely. And by the way, I think it's, uh, I mean, this is just a, a, another interesting diversion, but I think it's important. I think it's very, very easy. If It requires some delicacy of presentation. I think we can nudge people to choose click and collect over delivery to the home quite easily and it just requires a little bit of logistical tweaking now let me give you an example the standard approach will be the economic approach will be make click and collect cheaper than delivery the only problem with that is a of course you lose some sort of revenue potential revenue that's one problem the second problem is you tend to make click and collect seem like the poor man's version of home delivery you slightly stigmatize it now i've always thought if you're given a choice which is okay you can have this delivered to your locker or to your collection point guaranteed by 10 a.m or you can have it delivered to your home uh, anytime between 8 a.m and 8 p.m my hunch is we'd all choose the former now, as far as I can see, no one's actually no one's actually framed the choice in that way. But it would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? That actually, if you know, if we're only delivering to twelve hundred places, we should do those first and do the residential addresses second. Framing is such an important point you raise, Rory, on on all of these issues, because on customer experience, I think framing play such a big role because we were talking about the ridiculous example of Build-A-Bear workshop the other day. If, if you 
20 years ago, if you told somebody that you, you to get a teddy bear, you'd have to come to the store and build it yourself and choose and then sew it up and then you could take it home. They think it's a ridiculous notion, but yet correctly framed, it's a recreational experience and a customer experience. No, absolutely right. Um, I mean, th- w- you know, one of the strangest things is that there are so many businesses out there, edible arrangements perhaps being the most bizarre, <laughs> which which seem to survive while making, you know, if, if you had introduced them out of nowhere, uh, you're absolutely right. People would have just gone, this is completely insane. You know, I, I can't imagine build a bear going and searching for first round venture capital funding. That must have been a pretty painful task, I think. Um, Definitely. Um, now, on your on your point about nudging towards click and collect and stuff like that, I mean, if you think about um, the in-store experience, what's quite amazing is that this concept of a VIP customer doesn't seem to have any form of relevance in physical retail. It's almost sort of totally egalitarian in terms of what your experience in-store is. Isn't that strange? It's strange. And it's very interesting because I'll tell you a very funny story, which was I suggested that you could remove most of the problem of rail overcrowding on suburban commuter trains if you simply ran two or three trains a day at peak hours exclusively for season ticket holders. The idea being that if you pay us £2,000 a year and you travel on this train every day, you deserve a preferential right to a seat. Okay? now. I presented that idea, and the rail industry had never, it had never occurred to them. And then I presented it to a very astute consultant who said, that's exactly what happens with an airline already. Because if you fly to Frankfurt once a week, even if you're only sitting in economy, after about 20 flights, you'll end up getting promoted to the silver level. Uh, you'll have priority check-in lanes. You'll have access to the lounge, and you'll board the plane first. Now, the strange thing is, the rail industry and the Uh, and the airline industry are practically cousins. And yet in the rail industry, it was assumed that the only thing you gave to a frequent traveler was a discount. Okay. That's what a season ticket is. In other words, you save money, but the idea that you got preferential treatment was completely alien. In the airline industry, it's the other way around. They don't give you any discounts really for traveling very frequently, uh, unless your company is an enormous buyer of air travel, but they do give you preferential treatment. And there's something interesting going on there because um, it's not just preferential treatment, it's differential treatment. Because if you think about it, what you want from an airport if you make a journey 30 times a year is fundamentally different. You know, if you, if you fly to Frankfurt 30 times a year, you want your airport to be a place to work where you have Wi-Fi and a cup of coffee. And you could leave your laptop on a table, go to the loo, knowing your laptop won't be stolen. Okay, if you only use an airport once a year, actually, it's probably an opportunity for some luxury shopping. The 30 times a year travel is not remotely interested in the Louis Vuitton outlet. And so understanding that actually people who do things a lot, um, it isn't just a question that they deserve preferential treatment. They probably deserve differential treatment as well. And yet that seems to have completely escaped the notice of the people uh, in retail, just as yeah, it's it did amazing. people and in it's trains. like... Uh, the concept of 
sort of it's a socialist or public good, so therefore differentiation is an issue. But I, I love your your point about frequency because um, my wife is a frequent grocery shopper. We have a home with growing boys who eat a lot. And so she is spending a lot of time in the store refreshing. And probably the biggest pain point is the till point. And if you think about it, if you're a frequent shopper and a valuable shopper to somebody, shouldn't you get a VIP experience at the till point? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, people might find that unacceptable. Um, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, I suppose the the one the, the one thing you do have is you have Amazon Prime. Acado has a system where if you pay them a hundred pounds a year, you essentially get. Uh, unlimited free deliveries and preferential delivery booking at Christmas. Um, well, you do get you do get preferential treatment at a retailer if you're a very very small customer. That's interesting. I never thought of it like that, but you're right because you get five items or fewer. If you have a few or items, ten items or fewer. If yeah. you're a tiny customer, you get, yeah yeah you get a VIP queue. If you're a very small customer, but if you're a big customer, they put you through the pain barrier. It's completely absurd, isn't it, when you think about it? Now, obviously, there is a logic to it, which is that uh, someone doing a very small shop uh, is going to feel disproportionately annoyed uh, standing behind someone who has some vast, great vat or trolley full of, you know, two weeks shopping for eight children. But nonetheless, in economic well, terms, I think, it's I think absurdity. that it's not about um, discriminating. It, it, it's just that there's a good logic to having somebody with a small basket with their own queue because it's not really that sensible to have a million people with small baskets waiting behind a big basket. But nobody thinks about the enormous customer. So in a way, you, you could say you should have a VIP queue for a big customer and an express lane for a small customer and then um, or a frequent customer. It doesn't have to be because I guess if you're a big customer and you have a a medium-sized trolley at this particular point in time, you also could get frustrated if you have to sit in a long queue. But somebody that's a frequent, a frequent flyer in the supermarket should get a express checkout line with the friendliest cashier and free shopping bags and a lollipop for their child. The one thing we have in the UK which is akin to that, although there's no barrier to entry really, is the self-scanning system. Which does you in, in fact you go around scanning your own groceries and then when you actually go to check out it is more or less frictionless, um, and logic would suggest that's much more popular with heavy shoppers or more frequent ones. So it you know it's probably not worth going through the reservation process if you only shop at that particular um, chain uh, you know once every month. But if you go there every week, then but but actually a surprisingly large number of people seem uninterested in using that. I, I seem to be in a minority. Uh, even my wife gets irritated with me for doing that, to be honest. Have, so <laughs> it's clearly not solving the have problem. Have you ever tried to um, take a, a big basket through the self checkout? Because that that can be a bit like your your discussion on the Dyson fan. That when when it goes right, it's fantastic. But when it goes wrong, it can oh, take a long time. God. This is actually the the system I was talking to you is the one where you have a handheld scanner, which weirdly seems to be the least popular of all. Now that's an interesting question because I am sure 
we could nudge more people into doing that if we were clever about it. So um, if um, it's an interesting thing, you do have to register because obviously I suppose, uh, I, I think the way it works is every now and then they'll actually do a check that you're honest and then uh, they they check less and less frequently. It's kind of Bayesian process, I guess. Uh, they check less and less frequently if they've done, you know, four or five check scans over the first six months and you haven't attempted to nick lots of smoked salmon, uh, then they more or less give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, that's quite, um, a, that's quite a nice idea because I, I, I remember talking to um, one of the Dutch retailers and they had this um, scanner that you are you talking about the one where you you take your trolley and then when you put something in you scan it yourself and put it in the trolley that's it and you, that's yeah. it yeah now you you could you could have that sort of a, an offering for your VIP customers yes it's strange come to think of it when they launched it instead of saying because you're a loyal customer of ours and we can see your past custom because it is linked to a loyalty card interestingly um uh it, it, it is linked to your identity um it's strange that they didn't actually uh identify that i mean at a really extreme level they could have given you your own scanner come to think of it, it probably wouldn't work very well because you need to charge it but it is interesting that when they launched that they didn't think of saying uh this is something you know to the our 10 percent of top customers we offer you this because it would have felt a lot better i think that system had they made it available that way. I think that was a framing mistake, in fact. Yeah, and and isn't it? You know, again, again, as you say, it's about positioning. Because coming back to, you know, this is why I love chatting to you because you think about the behavioural aspect of things, and I I feel that on things like experience or convenience or the integration of physical and digital. We tend to think in too much of a utilitarian way um, about these things. So, so convenience is all about proximity, you know, a smaller store closer to the home. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's more convenient. Um, the example of, you know, an express checkout line or a scanner for a VIP customer, that for me is very behavioral and, and very much convenience. And I think you could have a disproportionate um, impact. Um, that's why I like the idea of us thinking about behavior in retail because i really do believe that physical retailers will have to fundamentally rethink the behavioral aspect of how the mission of shopping gets conducted to to make themselves relevant vis-a-vis uh, -vis the digital retailers in the future and i think i mean i think that the physical retail space has far more advantages than analysts realize i mean one of which is that um a large amount of our behavior is contextual. Now, for a start, okay, there will always be, as far as I can see, uh, a number of activities which require you to leave the home and go to a place of high, higher population density than the place you live. Dry cleaning, meeting friends for coffee. Uh, Funnily enough, I just spent <laughs> half an hour, about two hours ago, was spent in a Tesco cafe waiting for my car to be valeted in the car park. Um, those things are always going to be location specific. And it's worth remembering that um, there's a slight mistake in assuming that online retail has the advantage by positing a the single purchase of a known specific item, which is, I need this USB cable. I'm at home. I'm searching for it on my computer. I find someone who will deliver it to my door. I order it. Okay. Now, if you need to buy a single thing, 
on its own, and you have no other requirement to leave the house for the next two days. No one's disputing the fact for a second that online retail wins hands down in that rather specific use case. But most of the time, actually, I'm, you know, every every single day I go into work, um, I drive past uh, three very large stores, for example. Uh, By the way, I think there's a problem in Britain, which is that so many retail decisions are taken by Londoners who are a very, very specific case. So Londoners very rarely drive to work. Click and collect obviously doesn't work for Londoners because if you had to collect something from two separate locations, it would double the duration of your journey home. Now, in my case, if I have to collect things on the way home between the station and my home, it probably adds 300 yards and about three minutes to my journey time. Because I go into home base, there's a really great car park, there's an Amazon locker inside the home base, about 10 feet inside the front door. It really is barely impinging on my journey home at all. Now, to a Londoner, they don't understand that because uh, they don't drive to work. Um, and you know, and in London, car parking is basically impossible. So, so there's a very, very specific problem. I think Tesco. I think once said, you know, it's a it's a terrible thing to be a retailer headquartered in London because by the very act of living in London, you get so many things wrong. And um, but I think I think there is this issue, which is that most of the things we do, we do as a build on something else. You know, we go out, we need to get some keys cut. We wander next door and discover they've got some interesting sourdough bread. You know, it's not all shopping is single defined objective it's much much more kind of path dependent than that and i think physical retail and you know having locations in really good places still has a a strength that's undervalued by what you might call the instrumentalist school of, of financial investors who say because it's a more efficient way to buy one thing ergo it's a more efficient yeah. way to buy everything and i think I that's agree a false with that assumption. and i'll give you another bull case for physical retail shopping is pleasurable and I, I, never, yep, we love I read it. such a great quote. I think it was the founder of Whole Foods who said that um, eating is the second most pleasurable thing known to a human being. And on that basis, how can grocery be shopping be unpleasurable? A Whole Foods store at its best, when you walk into that food section, it's just the most delightful experience. I, I'm not sure that... It'd be interesting to see um, how that is perpetuated over time with the integration of Amazon. If that, if that sort of character um, and the richness and the patina of that experience can can be maintained, uh, I'm sure that they they've got an absolutely fantastic team that can do that. But but focusing focusing on what pleasure is and making the experience pleasurable. And thinking very laterally about, you know, the whole customer experience and how you can make it pleasurable through utility, pleasurable through experience. And in it's some it. ways, there's the, the the element, certainly in upmarket retail, of being seen. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the Whole Foods in London. Um, I, I actually feel I'm not cool enough to go there because I don't have any interesting tattoos and I don't have a Japanese girlfriend. So I always suspect they want to kick me out for generally bringing down the coolness quotient of their customer base. But if you go to a London... I like to go there because it makes me feel cooler than I am. (laughs) You're lucky. I I don't seem to have mastered vicarious cool. (laughs) 
Um, but no, it is an extraordinary, I mean, genuinely an extraordinary place. Uh, I mean, going there and you can see, okay, there's something here which no one's going to replicate. And, um, you know, you know, it's also interesting is if you think about sort of the different retailers and different levels of premiumization, the, the core, call it functional architecture of many of the retailers is quite similar, i.e. aisles, checkout, tills, till points, swiping a credit card. And isn't there something to think about in terms of turning some of those things on their head? You, you know, what, what would be the sort of the, the, the one-click checkout version of a physical checkout? Well, there's, of course, one other thing would be, I'm always very interested in the food court. And one of the things I noticed about the food court is that KFC does very well at the food court. And the reason is that one of the things about KFC is interesting because um, the problem with taking a party of six people to KFC is that one person always doesn't like it. McDonald's has the advantage of being the lowest common denominator where everybody's happy. Okay. And, and I always think that KFC has a disproportionate advantage because in any group of five people, there's a KFC rejecter who then forces everybody else to go to McDonald's. And the food court always interests me because it's a common eating area, but where you wander off in your own yeah. direction to get whatever it is you want to eat. Now, the ability where somehow you could centralize payment, but you'd actually have competing, uh, you know, uh, you'd actually have something like a market. Now, I suppose Morrison's went some way towards this, creating the thing Market Street in the UK. But you'd create something where there are almost, you know, a variety of, in some cases, quite extreme food retailers uh, competing for your custom. And so actually bringing in um, the equivalent of a guest beer into retail would be a really, really interesting thing. Um, you know, it's a it's quite an interesting thought you raise because uh, I, there is this argument that there is too much retail space yeah. at the moment. You know, analysts talk about too much square meterage of of retail space. Again, I think I think people are far too bearish on in the UK. The amount of retail, retail. space is um, insane. I think. I mean, it's worth remembering. I'm fairly sure the UK has something like bizarre, like 22 percent of the retail. Uh, space in Europe or something utterly crazy like that. Don't quote me on the precise figure, but no, you're yeah, you're, you're still right that there's a bearishness about yeah. that. Now, actually, of course, you can repurpose that space. Well, that's that's what I was, you know going to say because I I recall um, in my sort of earlier days, I had a I had a good friend who actually um, started a very interesting apparel fashion business and. He, he noticed that there were many, many young designers that couldn't afford a lease, um, did not know how to run a store. And effectively what he did was he took the head lease and created many pop-ups inside Interesting. the store, but he managed the till point. And yeah, and all the stock was Actually, by the way, the centralization so no of the till capital. point is probably reduced in importance because of contactless credit cards, by the way. So that may actually be something where, again, we've probably paved, paved the cow paths. 
It would, you know, you could create an in-store market. I mean, one of the interesting yeah. things, by the way, is one of the reasons why supermarket car parks are enormous is nothing to do with car parking. It's to make any competing shop such a long walk away that you d- essentially it creates a kind of no-go zone around your supermarket. So anyone parking near your supermarket is going to visit your store and no one else's, simply because the distances involved are, uh, are enormous. Now, actually, an interesting approach would be to take the car park and say, we're actually going to allow people to open a market here, and we're going to become a little bit of a destination in our own right. Yeah, and I can tell you the novelty of it is massive because – I was in the Netherlands the other day and um, I was I was visiting a metro store. It's a macro there. And in the car park, they almost had like a mini festival. There was a barbecue going on. There was a bit of music and a pop-up bar where you could get a G&T. And I must tell you, it was so refreshing to have that experience in the sunlight. You could, you the, the joy was almost palpable. Um, and, and so this concept of like little moments of joy in retail and surprise i think that there's so many of these opportunities again if we think about the behavioral side or the the human side and the personality of things i really do think that there's so much more that we can do in brick and mortar retail and also to make possibly it a- i mean in every i always suspect in every household there's a person who hates shopping more than another person does uh, you know that, that uh, it's a very strange thing that um, uh, th- that what you know one of the problems uh, one thing that Sky TV did in the UK was it sort of brought families a bit together because you, originally you had one Sky box that was attached to the one enormous television. And so the family watched together. And now, of course, the mobile phone and smaller flat screen TVs in secondary rooms have fragmented it again. But if you created a more variegated experience, I was hugely impressed by the um, uh, the Galleria in Houston, which is an enormous Texan mall. And uh, what was interesting is you have all the usual, re- you know, food retailers you'd expect in the American South. Um, you know, there'd be an Arby's, there'd be a Chick-fil-A. But they also had a stall selling kind of almost handmade gourmet ice lollies, for example. And so they had a whole bunch of everything from what you might call, you know, the mass scale bargain side of the market to uh, the artisan side of the market. And it made it a fantastic place. I mean, it really, you know, um, you know, all of us were there as a family of four, and we all found it actually really pretty interesting. And so that that kind of format, I think, is is increasingly interesting. There is a danger, I always think, with 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 if we're talking mostly about grocery retail. One of the things that worries me about the high street is it's become increasingly dominated by two or three categories of high margin product, which is coffee shops, high margin, women's clothing, very high margin. And there was always a danger to me that the, that the high street had become a bit feminized. That you were in danger of having a high street where if you were a guy, you know, because the modern, again, stereo, you know, the model railway and drone shop was going to be in, in low value retail on the outskirts of town, as it were. And the high street itself was so dominated by these high margin areas, a bit like Heathrow Terminal 5. You know, Heathrow Terminal 5, patently, you know, the cost of retail is insane. So it pays Louis Vuitton to operate there. It certainly pays Zara, okay? Now, at some point, 
this drives the place to a kind of insanity where actually it only becomes good for one purpose. Interesting. I've just thought of something. In a way, there was a there was a criticism in the old days, early, early modern trade retail, that modern trade grocery retailers were like landlords and they simply rented out their space. And if you were available, you were. If yep. you weren't, you weren't. And in a sense, I think that perhaps we need to think a bit more carefully about the ecosystem in a broader sense and that the landlords and the retailers should be collaborating better to get the mix right and the novelty and the experience and to be able to cater um, for everybody because in a way, uh, more than ever, I guess, physical retailers need to be playing a team game. Well, it's very funny you say this because this was actually an argument between me, a friend of mine, and a Nobel Prize winning economist. And we were working again on a railway account. And one of the ways in which we said you should look after your season ticket holders is we said you should ask people who travel very frequently on the train what retailers would be most useful to them at London Bridge or Charing Cross Station. Now, okay, 70% of the retail should probably be profit maximizing. But we said 30% of it should simply be useful. You know, what is it? You know, now, for whatever reason, you can charge a huge margin for a coffee at a railway station. You can't charge more for a postage stamp. But that doesn't mean that people wouldn't find it useful to have a small post office at a large railway station, for instance. Now, where we had the argument was that the Nobel Prize winning economist thought that market forces would, I think it's called Coe's theorem, would ev- eventually optimize the combination of shops in a place. And our argument was, no, it wouldn't. A, because you'd be disproportionately focused on the high margin goods you could sell to infrequent travelers. I, I'm going to visit my aunt and I need to buy wrapping paper. So there's a branch of paper chase in the railway station. But there isn't a place selling something, you know, which is uh, simply high utility that the kind of average daily commuter might want to buy. And it struck us that actually, if you simply profit maximize with a larger retail space, uh, without any kind of active curation, you probably create something which is actually uh, less valuable overall, that actually you fail to create a whole that's, that's more valuable than the sum of its parts. I agree with that. And and actually, it's a bit of a human condition that we don't tend to focus on the asymmetries. We tend to just focus on what's kind of most valuable to us as opposed to what maybe is not valuable to us and valuable to other people. I think that's a quite a useful lens. Um, so I mean, we thought it might be. I mean, this was a you know, surmise. Look, there's no way it's ever going to be economical to run a dry cleaner at a railway station if you have to charge the same uh uh, if you have to pay the same amount of rent per square foot as, say, Costa Coffee does, you know, it's never going to work. On the other hand, we said, look, as Network Rail, you own these stations. In part, your brief should be to improve the quality of life for the, the regular travelling public. And maybe you ought to think about just having, uh, you know, two or three highly useful retailers there. Um uh, you know, almost just for the sake of, you know, uh, of improving the overall journey, not so much as simple individual profit maximization. Yes. And same for the example of sampling the substitute product if you've failed to have the product in stock. 
Exactly. Yeah. That actually it's okay. Looked at from a very narrow perspective, that's a loss. That's a hit. I would say that looked at from um, a perspective of, particularly if you're a, if you're a, if you're a premium retailer, people by and large choose premium retail for emotional reasons, all kinds of unconscious reasons, but they absolutely love to have a story which validates their decision which says, here's why I go to Waitrose, because, you know. And um, Ocado, I think, which is a premium online retailer, understands that quite well, in that if anything's broken or fails to arrive, they refund you more or less, no questions asked. I mean, obviously, they can do that a little bit better because they do have line of sight over who you are. And I'm sure if you started claiming that everything was broken every week, um, they'd pretty quickly um, rumble you. Um, but uh, it was interesting, actually. Uh, normally, I think if you cancel a delivery at the last minute, uh, you have to pay some sort of, you know, uh, £5 or something fee for the goods to be returned. And it was interesting that after probably ordering from them a 100 times, I was detained because a relative had to go into hospital. And I rang up and they said, well, normally there'd be a £5 charge for this. But I mean, you know, not you know, we wouldn't dream of charging it under these circumstances, and that's the kind of thing which is, uh, you know, okay, they lost five pounds, but it was, um, uh, it, it was an un- unbelievably good way of, you know, uh, of of gaining, uh, you know, a small victory out, out of what could have been a, a disaster. And somebody had the good sense to have empathy for you. Yes, absolutely. And to be honest, I suspect, you know, A, I pay for the unlimited delivery service. B, I've been a customer of theirs pretty much since day one. So they have got enough data on me to know this man is not a, you know, he's not a repeat offender. And, you know, which is important if you think about it, because in part of the value of a loyalty program, and it always interests me, is I, nobody ever mentions this because they think loyalty programs are all about rewards. But interestingly, the Waitrose Loyalty Program and M&S Sparks don't have an explicit rewards program. And I think what may be going on there is that, to take the airline example, I like flying with an airline that I know knows I fly with them a lot. So when I fly with British Airways, I'm you know in whatever tier it is, I've been in that tier or the silver tier for most of the last nine years. And I have the confident feeling with British Airways, and to some extent with the wider um, One World Alliance, but particularly with British Airways, that, okay, they know I'm not a tourist. You know, in other words, if there are only four seats left and the snow starts coming down, they're going to make a bit of a special effort for me. Okay. Now, when I fly with Lufthansa, and I only fly with the Star Alliance probably once every 18 months, I have the slightly anxious feeling that as far as they care, it's why I always use the same taxi firm in my local town. You know, I'm sure I could get a slightly better price by shopping around. But the simple fact is, if I use them a lot, one day they're going to bail me out because they see me as a source of future revenue. And so there's something going on there with loyalty programs, which is they're actually recognition programs as well as loyalty programs that I think we need to understand a bit better. I think that, you know, this is a great- anything that removes that anonymity, I think, is emotionally important. Absolutely. And the feeling of being recognized, valued, being special. I think this is a, this is a great area where there is the opportunity to, to do some very special things for loyal customers and um, I, I must say I think it's so well captured in 
your railway versus airline example because often the loyalty programs, again, they, they're sort of such copycat programs in that it's just giving you money back. The more you transact, a little bit more money back. But actually, there can be so much more value delivered by giving extra special service or privileges for loyalty. And I mean, one of the ones I suggested, uh, uh, in fact, to British Airways, uh, which ironically would cost absolutely zero. If you're in the gold tier of the British Airways loyalty program, it makes sense to check in at one end of Terminal 5, because that's where the first class check-in is. And the first class check-in has its own security lane. So you get markedly preferential treatment if you actually check in at that little bit of the airport. Now, the car park which is a four-story car park or maybe a five-story car park, runs all the way along the side of the building. I said, I said to PA, why don't you just reserve 500 parking spaces at that end of the building for gold card members? And I said, there's a double win there. They will be able to park closest to the bit which gives them the, the biggest benefit. They will feel swanky parking in a special gold-colored bay. Uh, more than that, of course, it gives them an excuse to put a BA gold executive card sticker in the windscreen of their car. <laughs> which, um, if you notice what people do with luggage tags, my hunch is that there's quite a lot of emotional reward around that. And um, so, you know, those kind of little things. The interesting thing is, of course, if you think about being allowed to board the plane first, it costs nothing because somebody's got to board the plane first. And so by making it your most regular passengers who get to board first. By the way, that's an interesting one because I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. When I first started flying back in the late 90s, flying frequently on business, the privilege for the frequent traveller was that you got to board last. And in fact, in the lounge, they'd call you very late and you'd be the last people to board the plane. Now, that seems to have reversed. And it may be because of the invention of digital entertainment and so forth that actually people would rather board the plane and just settle down with their tablet or, you know, whatever, than actually board at the last minute. But I'm fairly sure that in the early days of flying, it was considered a privilege to board last. I think it's also got something to do with um since that george clooney movie up in the air and people just travel with hand luggage because uh, there's nothing more freaky than getting into the middle of the plane and having no space to put your course. hand luggage so i do i do tend to find as a frequent flyer the the ability to get on first and ensure that my hand luggage goes into the overhead compartment um does tend to does tend to work and you know it's actually a huge convenience You're because absolutely right the, of course the, that the must explain it between having a space and not having a space it can be transformational to your journey and of course i suppose the bigger flat beds in uh, premium classes also make a difference in that you wouldn't want to board that early in an economy configuration in a standard seat. But actually, if you're in a bed, you're going to be, you know, or, you know, you're going to be, or suite, you're going to be as comfortable as you would be on the ground, you know, uh, realistically. But you're right about the luggage. I never thought of that. That's decisive. Because, of course, everybody over time learned to game the system. <laughs> yeah. To me, I think this idea that essentially we haven't yet seen the full ingenuity of the physical retailers response to digital competition and that so far what they've done is respond in the most obvious way which is in a sense to simply duplicate an online person's offering um uh, uh you know uh, without actually looking for really strong synergies between the two 
and that would be that would be the thing which is once for example once physical retail inventory becomes searchable in real time uh, i will be very very interested to see what effect that might have on um uh, uh, you know, on on Amazon and online retail, simply because my hunch would be a significant number of people, if allowed to reserve or pay a small deposit, uh, would behave very very differently. Um, if you actually knew what was available on your high street and could guarantee there was no wasted journey, so my question, I suppose, very simply is: we're assuming that the future of retail is Amazonification. And my contention from a British standpoint is maybe what we'll see is the Argosification. And I like the idea of hitting the ball back across the net because the digital retailers had the benefit of almost inventing this new form of retail from scratch and created all kinds of new and novel experiences, which in many cases are not that replicable, but the physical environment offers some advantages which haven't been exploited and the physical retailers have still got some, call it, buried uh, gems that can be unearthed in an attempt to create a more human, more interesting, more novel and more prestigious and warm and better experience for shoppers. And I think it's quite interesting to sit and talk and reflect on all this because if we can out of this behavioral science piece on retail, think about how we can help the brick and mortar retailers become better, become better retailers, is that the amazing thing about physical retail is it brings people into the workplace. It's one of the only places in the world that you can bring someone into the workplace without a tertiary qualification. You can start as a shop assistant or a cashier, or a shelf Absolutely right. Yeah, that that and uh, that that and, and hospitality, hospitality are the only and two. Yeah, which are genuinely meritocratic. I completely buy that. Yeah, and there's very, a magic to point. that. And in this world where there is this enormous disparity between rich and poor, and so many people looking for opportunities, there is a deeper purpose and need for physical retail. And so I think I'm optimistic about the future, and I think that we can. Think of new and better ideas to make it an exciting place to be. Huge thank you to David and to Rory there. Um, thank you to David for his time, his insight, um, his expertise, um, and Rory and David's uh, comparison between um, flying and train travel. As a frequent train traveler, that was... Uh, yeah, a bit of an eye-opener, I think. Um, as ever, thank you to Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind uh, for the music. Um, and thank you to you, dear listeners, um, for helping us get to 25 episodes. Here's to the next quarter of a century. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon.